Hello, hello, daughters. Hello, daughters. Did you say what? <laughs> you interrupted me with your confusing dis- words. This is off to a good start. Oh, fucking! I'm Ryan. <laughs> I'm Harland. We are the Doddlers. I think before we used to just be, and we are Doddlers, you know, and that's fine. Oh. But now we've moved on, and we are the Doddlers. Yeah, we're like a band, and that sounds like a lot more pressure. <laughs> yeah, of course. We yeah. But because we are the Doddlers, it's a good thing that we're here trying to run the Doddlers Philosophy Podcast. Because who else could do it? Podcast. Click, 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 click. Is that, you mean the uh, the theme song? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. Someone says podcast and then it clicks. Mm-hmm. And that someone is you. No, I'm joking. I don't know. I just thought I'd get a little weird. You can, you can edit all of this out. I can. But I might not. Uh, what are we talking about today, Ireland? Lazy boys. Lazy boys. I'm sitting in one right now. That's right. <laughs> We're talking about the armchair. Oh, yeah. May or may not recline, but we're going to talk about how philosophy is an activity that takes place often from some sort of seated, if not reclined, position and what that entails. Oh, well, I mean, as the quote-unquote scientist, should I just be at like a lab bench instead then? So I can be like looking through a microscope while... Uh, you talk about things from your armchair so you can be the quote-unquote falafeler? Yeah, you've got options. I think you could be on like a metal stool, perhaps. Yeah, something super uncomfortable. I got like major hemorrhoids. Yeah. It's awful. Yes. But that keeps your focus or something. I don't know. But yeah, and then we get the comfy chairs. It's not focus. It's just being cheap, right? Because like in your grant that you write up, you're like, and two metal stools. Because they look at everything. <laughs> it's really hard on one of those stools to lean back, cross your legs, and puff your pipe, I think. And oh, that's, for sure. That's why we need... Uh, you got a brandy in one hand, a scar in the other, and uh, be able to say, hmm, Well, you see, I, Yeah, exactly. And we'll, we'll get to the, uh, the armchair, but I feel so compelled to tell you that scientists being chemists just create the, like... The drug and then they just sniff it off the lab counter and so they want to be engaged they lean in and down for their drugs yeah you guys lean in we lean back 
That's how it is. <laughs> the embodied chimpness of the two disciplines. Okay, so embodied chimpness, one embodiment is leaning back in an armchair with a brandy and a pipe. Why do you, what are you talking about, man? When they lean back and puff and contemplate, uh, what are they doing? What can they do? What can't they do? <laughs> what can't they do? We're going to pull uh, the curtain back. <laughs> yeah, what can't they do? <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a good one. I haven't laughed like that in a while. Armchairs. From their armchair, what some philosophers think they have access to and are experts with is something that we call intuition. And tonight, we're going to talk about intuitions. Okay. In philosophy, and then, you know, potentially if you have anything to add from from the science side or whatever, that'll be the general topic. The armchair-ness of philosophy and its frequent use of intuition, question mark, that itself will be debated because the first work that will be referenced this evening is a book that I got and read called Philosophy Without Intuitions by Herman Kaplan. I was fooled by the, as a philosopher, I just judged it by its cover, or at least the title thereon, and I said, Philosophy Without Intuitions, I would like to do some of that. Maybe I can learn how in here. But what it's really about is the claim Kaplan is saying philosophy is already done without intuitions. <laughs> so he's trying to have that debate. A key word, a bolded term that we're going to reference throughout this evening is the word centrality. And that is the word that I think Kaplan made up to refer to the position that he thinks most philosophers think. Centrality is contemporary analytic philosophers rely on intuitions as evidence for philosophical theories. Kaplan's point is centrality is false in philosophy without intuitions. So when we talk about the degree to which or the ways in which or if philosophy is heavily intuitive, that will be a centralist or a centrality claim. Kaplan writes, As I see it, the majority of the participants in contemporary methodological debates have included centrality in their common ground. This has generated their joint research program. Some are in favor of intuition-based philosophy, some are against it, and others are simply deeply concerned and not sure what to think about what they take to be their own methodology. So we've got the... Anti-centralists, like Kaplan, who says intuition is not an important part of philosophical methodology. And then we have the centralists, who, bre- who he was breaking into three camps. One, intuition is used, and that's a good thing. Intuition is a powerful tool that we have, and it's, it's rational to appeal to intuition. And then you've got the pessimists, that say intuition is very heavily utilized in philosophy, and that's a bad thing. It'd be better if we didn't do that. Intuition is not trustworthy. And then the neutral centralists 
who are saying, yeah, I agree, it's in there, I don't really know what to make of it, it seems problematic, I think it can probably be misused, but maybe it's not bad all the time, I don't know. <laughs> One who has listened to the Dollar's Philosophy catalog up to this point would probably be unsurprised to hear that this particular host is a pessimistic centralist. I think intuitions do play a very heavy role in how most philosophers do philosophy, and that that is appalling! It's deplorable! <laughs> it just disgusts me! <laughs> you have a thought on that from the outside? You know, for all of those who have become familiar with the catalog, would perhaps recognize that this host would probably be like a neutralist, right? And I'm just like, I don't know, it could be fun. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know, we could accidentally do something and be awesome. I, I, I would definitely be a neutral camp, but only from the standpoint of like, that's the place where I would begin, you know, because I am on the outside, right? I have not been digging in this realm for nearly as long as you have. And so I would just be like, well, where's the best place to start? You know, like, you know, when you're on the menu and you're like, what's the safest thing you know, I, I see that there's, like, haggis with eyeballs. I don't know if I want to do that, you know. <sighs> you know, which is, do you have a burger with a milkshake? Yeah, I'm American. Anyway. But that sounds slightly different to me if you're saying, do you use some sort of non-cerebral methodology to make your culinary decisions? This is about whatever quote-unquote philosophical theories are. That's is, that's too literal a, a reading of my analogy, but yes. <laughs> um, Can intuition provide what a philosopher might call evidence for a what a philosopher might call a theory, which I think a scientist would probably have a distaste for the use of both of those terms, the way philosophers tend to use them. Yeah, uh, But, uh, you know... What is intuition in this sense? I guess that would be... Is that an obvious question to ask at this point? Sure. Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Let's debate it. And, and isn't that a problem? So in, <laughs> in philosophy without intuitions, Kaplan himself doesn't indent and in bold put intuition and define it for us in the way he wants it defined. And when he talks about the way that other people talk about it, he points out that there is a plethora of options. There does not seem to be a well-established communal semantics around intuition talk. One of Kaplan's... So, okay, he talks about... He breaks the centralist arguments out into two primary strategies. One, the argument from intuition talk. If you think that intuition plays a large role in philosophy, one of the things you might do is look through a few books and pull out a shit ton of quotes where a philosopher says, intuitively, X. <laughs> and the second argument being the argument from philosophical practice. And that's more hermeneutical and interpretive. And maybe they didn't say the word intuitively in this passage but if you extract their argument, it appears as though it relies on some thing well characterized as intuition. So that those are the two strategies that the centralists can take 
the latter is the one that we will be that I will be taking tonight when when I attempt to bring up an exemplar of a prominent philosopher who I think appeals to intuition in a negative way when Kaplan is talking about what he calls the argument from intuition talk AIT <laughs> he stresses how differently it is utilized in the literature. And I would say, uh, reflexively, ironically, this count as irony, that people kind of usually do their word choice kind of intuitively. They just say whatever sounds appealing. They just, you know, well, what feels good here? I'll say intuitively when I don't want to argue for something. (laughs) And they don't have a great definition. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? The, even sure. the people who use... So Kaplan doesn't have it in his glossary, and nor do most people who use the word. I hope that I don't, as because I, I don't like it so much, and I don't know what it even means. And if and I think if we... All of the different options for what it might mean ain't no good. But the people who do use it just kind of throw it out there. But let's attempt to pull out a couple of possible candidates. Kaplan quotes an experimental philosopher named Jonathan Weinberg as writing this, quote, Intuitions are odd critters. Ah. Intellectual happenings in which it seems to us that something is the case without arising from our inferring it. They frequently stand out with great psychological salience, but they are not forthcoming about their own origins. Does that make sense? Intuitively, I like that one. No. Um, (laughs) I do like it, though. I mean, I, having not heard any of the others or having sat around thinking about intuition, I, I like it because it's kind of, there's no, it's like it just like a little poof of cloud floating by gears that should normally be making smoke somewhere. But you don't, you know what I mean? Like, you're just sort of like, what the, where is this coming from? And, and yet, if there's a strong appeal about it, like in the idea of talking about the psychological salience, like right, I like that little yeah clause. And so I just thought, well, when I was hearing it, I thought that seems it's it's a sort of he's describing it to me anyway, at least as I'm hearing it, as something that is somewhat detached from a more intense, in-depth form of thinking about you know variables that are all coming together and interlocking you're trying to make sense of it all it's not a synthesis by any means it's just the poof of cloud that somehow you glom onto and you're like no it's the best you know or whatever and you've got nothing you have no arguments you have no evidence you don't have anything you're just sort of like Intuitively, this makes sense. People say that, I think, sometimes. When you kept saying intuitively, I was like, yeah, yeah, people love to say this, like, follows. Or, you know, you can draw this conclusion out of thin air or something. I also like that included the word seems in it. Yeah. Because that's another thing that many philosophers will write, even if they don't say intuitively, they will say, well, it seems (laughs) X, Y, and Z. And I think when they're doing that, I usually read it as synonymous, replaceable, by saying, well, I have the intuition that. Yeah. So I think that's what we might as well use for tonight. Some other definition-adjacent comments 
included in the Kaplan, or these are some different strategies that one could use when making a definition, which is what he gives us rather than actual definitions. <laughs> you could do the Aristotelian thing and specify a set of features that you think intuitive judgments must have, then try to show that the judgments of these philosophers have those properties. One of the places that they often, that centralists stress intuitions play a role, is in thought experiments, which their jargon term of art for is the method of cases. Doesn't that sound better? See, instead of, anyway. So, uh, and this is the kind of Dennett style, certain philosophical passages parade themselves as arguments are actually better viewed as mere intuition pumps because all they're doing is appealing to how it seems to you when it is stated this way. That's using the method of cases. And then there's the comment that philosophers typically don't conduct experiments or do empirical research of any kind. If this is right, it raises the question of just how philosophical knowledge can be obtained, quote-unquote, from the armchair. Intuitions are sometimes the answer, which I take to be the sort of Kantian tradition, Mm. the rationalist activity of, yes, there is a special domain of capital K knowledge that philosophers lord over, and it's because they are well-trained experts at utilizing some kind of psychological faculty that we have and that would be called intuition. Huh. I, I don't think... <laughs> I, I, I want to be like, I don't think so, but that's... I don't think so either. Well, the, the reason why I would say that is, you know, there's some... It's not a, I don't think it's a huge jargon term, if it is one at all, but like in neurological and neuropsych kind of research, there is, you know, research into the idea of like, sudden insight but typically i think and that's i think the phrase that's used and it's just the aha epiphany type thing but that typically happens after a long period of time of someone really mulling over something and usually you can kind of backtrack and figure out oh yeah it was these pieces were here and they're you know they weren't necessarily free floating or whatever but they were just out there and you put them together um, and then you can usually, you know, do the genealogy of where all these separate things were, you know, coming from. But intuitions that, like, somehow you'd have some kind of psychological, you know, muscle that could, you know, work these things out. I think whenever I have some kind of intuition, I guess I have that voice in my head. It's either an advisor or someone on my committee or something who's just like, and where did you get that piece of information from? So you're always just like, well, this thing popped into my head. Maybe I did read it somewhere, like the first definition. <laughs> you know, maybe mm-hmm. maybe it's... So then you scour. Like, you spend a ton of time scouring, looking for where that may have come from. And it's usually a its own, like, game of fits, because you're just, like, thumbing through books and just like, God damn it! You know, like, I think it's here, like... And you don't really have a, a, like, you're literally following other intuitions just to like, be like, yeah, it's got to be this book. And you thumb through and like, it's not here, you know, like it's not attached to anything and you're, it's a struggle, you know, but you don't, at least my training, I guess, 
I'll say, I th- or how I interpreted the training, was you don't just put something out there. You, I mean, I wouldn't be like intuitively, blah, 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 about something scientific, I guess. At least I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. I would feel like someone would call me out on it almost immediately. <laughs> you know, just like, huh? You know, and, and so in in scientific journals, usually there's not a lot of sentences that don't have some kind of reference because you kind of have to support where you got everything from. Anyway, sorry, I went on too long there. But to that last point, yeah, to that last point, I would say I don't, I don't agree. I like that that's how scientists do it to the extent that they do. I think that is a good thing. That's that's my experience. Methodologically superior, and I wish more philosophers would call each other out when they rest on intuitions. That was the final option in this list of Kaplan's, is that some people think that intuition-based judgments are somehow or other rock bottom. Some people call it certain. Uh, perhaps, again, re- referencing episode 18, the G.E. Moore stuff, but here's one hand, here's another. I thought about that, but I wasn't sure of it to whether or not to bring it up or not. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, but the, the, these things that people just take to be foundational, and they think, I don't need to argue for this. Enthusiastic intuitionists, enthusiastic centralists, will say, yeah, that's fine and good. That's how we ought to operate in philosophy. Attempt to seek the rock-bottom intuitions, and those are the first principles from which we may derive our theories. And they think that's somehow a legal move. Really? (laughs) Like, these are your first principles? Yikes. No. It can't be. It can't be. It really happens. We're not going to do it around here. But, yeah, people get away with that. I will see (sighs) if I can convince you that I have an example tonight. Okay. Perfect. If philosophers characterize key premises in central philosophical arguments as intuitive and refer to the evidence for their theories as intuitions, we have good reason to think they rely on intuitions as evidence. After all, we're just taking them at their word. Writes Kaplan about the argument from Intuition Talk. And he has a set of challenging questions to those of us who want to be centralists and think that philosophers use intuitions. Question one, well, to what extent do philosophers engage in intuition talk? Two, how central is such talk to the arguments? And three... When such language is invoked, is the correct interpretation of it centrality supportive? So he's going to say, all right, you guys are going to go out there, you're going to find your examples. That you're going to come back to me and say, look, here's a philosopher being an intuitionist. And the intru- and he's just saying, all right, well, is it just once on page 37 out of a 400-page book? Because that's not enough. Is it central to the argument? Or is it merely written that way, and you could rephrase it or take it out without losing anything? You could reconstruct the argument with no intuitions in it, and it would still work, he thinks. Mm. And then, finally, even when you find some putatively intuitive text, is it robust enough that it actually supports the centralist thesis, or is it a mere... So one of his examples is he thinks a lot of it is just hedging. So anytime that the word intuitively is used as a hedge, that would mean that they fail at this question three. Mm-hmm. 
that the language is invoked, but it doesn't, it's not central to their purpose. And he can come up with examples right. where hedging seems to right. be, ah, there it is, where I am willing to agree. <laughs> like, what? Hedging seems. Primarily the purpose, the function of writing intuitively comma in this location is to indicate to the reader that you are especially flexible on this. But I don't think that the hedging is as prevalent as Kaplan does. It can be used that way. I don't think most of it is. Okay. Another thing that he argues is that he doesn't use the word meme. He uses the phrase verbal virus. I don't know why, but he has a verbal virus theory, and he points to Chomsky (laughs) and Rawls, I think, as a sort of seed that was planted, where it's like some big-name people used intuitively a lot in their work, and it just replicated from there. And the people who read those works picked up the habit of saying intuitively all the time. If he was right about that, I think that would work to defeat a lot of central centralism. If it's just a couple of prominent people used it, and all they were doing was hedging or something, and then other people, their students and readers copied them, emulated, it just happened, you know. Can I ask a question? Is this intuition stuff like a big a big buck to get in philosophy? Not dollars, but like, you know, mount the head on the wall, <laughs> whatever, like, you know. Is this like one of those big deals? And he's like, I'm going to tackle that big deal problem. Because to me, from my perspective, I'm like, what an interesting thing to take on. <laughs> Should be like, you know, just being like, yeah, he said intuitively, but I don't think he meant it. You know, like, whatever. It's just, it's an odd, it's a strange, Yes, not strange. It's just an interesting, very seemingly to me, specific thing to get all worked up about. That you read a huge book being like, there's there's no intuition in philosophy. Relax. You know, like, who is he telling to relax? Who's upset about this? I think that intuition is a growing industry, (laughs) uh, philosophical work about intuition. And it's typically in the sub-branch that we would call metaphilosophy or philosophical methodology. This book was published in 2012. I think that the, to the extent there is one, the intuition-focused industry is relatively new and growing. My claim would be that's because Prior to recently, everybody was an intuitionist and they just, they all took it for granted and thought that was a fine, legitimate move. And so people didn't really talk about, look into, emphasize, write 200-page books about intuitions because everybody just was using them and taking them for granted. But now some philosophers, some meta-philosophers are coming around to emphasize and examine how intuition plays a role and whether or not it's a good thing and that kind of stuff. So it's still relatively small, but growing. I see. So, okay, that's... It kind of sounds like in medicine there's always something that you've been eating for years and it's given everyone cancer, you know, or whatever. You know, just now everyone's focusing. Yes, that's it. You guys have been doing this for years. 
and it has yeah riddled your theories. Well, the latest with one was like, and I'm I'm not trying to go down this path, but the latest one that I saw, you know, the heading was just like all this iron, you know, in our food enriched you know iron or whatever you know you've been eating cornflakes for years you know <laughs> i mean it's like all these diseases it's horrible anyway you've been doing it for years here is a philosopher who you who i think uses intuitions his name is tyler burge quoted in the kaplan he writes i shall have little further to say in defense of the second and third steps of the thought experiment. Both rest on their intuitive plausibility. That's, I think, a very common move. I think when people do that, we should, as Kaplan says, take them at their word. and Or um, go ahead and look into it, read the rest of it, attempt to formulate the argument without these intu- intuitive appeals. But much of the time, I don't think you can do it. Interesting. Kaplan's response to that quote is, Burge is explaining why he will not discuss the second and third steps of a thought experiment. Because what he says about those steps is in the common ground between he and his opponents prior to the inquiry. What? The common ground between him and his... His audience, whatever. whatever. So is it just that this is something that his opponents and he would accept? Yeah. And so he just then labels it intuitive. And so he's like, the sky is blue. It's intuitive. Is that what the, or what? Give me like, uh, I need something. Yeah. Okay. The reason I was bringing this up is because I wanted to stress episode 10, etc. about arguments. Excellent. That if Kaplan is right about this or to the extent or where he's right, that I'm all for it being acceptable, but then I want to, episode 8, general semantics, change the way we say it. I think it's not only a common move, but an unavoidable move at this point in 2019, given English and how we work as chimps, that there has to be an indefinitely large base of assumptions, tacit premises, shared underlying common ground. We can't talk to each other without it. If we needed to spell out and make explicit literally every premise, we would never be able to say anything. To that extent, in that sense, I'm okay with saying, I'm not going to argue here, in this book, in this paper, at this time, any further for two and three. But what you need to follow that up with is not by saying... Because two and three are intuitive. When you do that, you're attributing to them a property. There is such a thing as intuitiveness. A premise can or cannot have it. And judgments about the presence or absence of that property will be shared by all competent judges. I don't like any parts of that. But you can get everything you want to get. You can get the brevity. You can get the, you know, I state this, but I'm not going to go any further into it. If you just said, I'm going to assume for now that these are agreed upon. Or in order to follow this argument further, you'll have to agree. In other words, 
if... Like, you just fuck the whole thing and put if in front of your premise. It's all about making things conditional. That's all you need to do. So if you say, if two and if three, then, you can skip the whole thing about, I am going to rest upon their intuitive plausibility. Shut the fuck up. What do you know? Yeah. They don't have... What is intuitive plausibility? Now, (laughs) as soon as you've said that, you've brought up a huge amount of potential dispute and conflict and now you're going to have to argue to me that in what's your definition of intuitive what is plausible and what isn't how sure do you have to be you've caused a whole bunch of problems you could have canceled it all out by just conditionalizing (laughs) i (laughs) yeah i i uh every time you say intuitively I think of a word that seems to be trying that could play this a similar role, though we wouldn't want to use it. But I always keep thinking, indubitably. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's. I don't know where that comes. It sounds like maybe a Monty Python character or somebody would. Yeah. Be walking around saying indubitably. But I think when I looked it up, it it has a similar like it's too evident to be doubted or whatever, the the meaning so or whatever. But, yeah, those would be close and related, but I don't think really the same thing. Indubitably exactly doesn't, no. for example, invoke some occult cognitive mechanism that we <laughs> have. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easily falsifiable, and I like to do this in conversation when people say absolutist words like, indubitably, it cannot <laughs> be done. And I'm like, no, of course it can, I'll show you. I'm doubting it, right? Look. Like, they, or they'll say, well, you know, nobody, no one would deny X. And then I just say, yeah, I raise my hand, not X. Whoops, I just did it. Now what? Someone would deny it. Yeah. Intuitively is a little bit more of a weasel word than in that way, in that it sort of, you feel like a jerk if you don't totally get it. Like, oh, shit, I, I don't, do I have this common ground? I, oh, what have I not done? What is it that I don't have that this person and all these other great people have with their intuitions, with their common ground? Yeah, I mean, I, I can understand roughly the common ground thing. It did make me think, and I <clears throat> I don't know all the details, but I think when mathematicians try and do a lot of proofs, you know, they, they probably do appeal to some extent um, prior proofs or whatever, but still there is a, isn't there a constant whittling down, you know, where it's like, you're trying to support some, you know, mathematical object or whatever through all these other uh, mathematical approaches. And they also need to be at least called out and say like, okay, well, this has been, you know, supported in this way and so on and so forth. And so I get that you can't always say everything. You'll never get around to saying anything at all. But at the same time, it it just, it's... uh, that it's trying in that case trying to serve a similar purpose but as you said just put the conditionals in there and you know you don't have to worry about it but i don't think that appeals to people is the other thing i was going to say i i would think that the intuitive thing when someone you know invokes that or whatever that it's the attempt is you're trying to t- you know touch truth you know and all that kind of stuff right you're trying to I guess I'm assuming to some extent that the attempt is to shed light on the world. And it is I who has done it. That kind of thing. 
And so stronger language would help at least the reader to be like, ah, they've climbed the mountain. You know, if you're sitting there putting ifs and givens and all that kind of stuff in front of your, you know, you're like, you're, you're leaving it out there and, uh, you, you're not sure you've done it or not. And it just, I, I don't know. I wonder if how much ego comes into play at all. I would imagine quite a bit. And I think this is maybe part of why, if this claim is correct, philosophers tend to have larger egos than scientists tend to have. Because of what you mentioned earlier, the scientist tries to say something and gets smacked down all the time. The philosopher, the more eloquently and with more certainty they can express themselves, the more likely they're able to accumulate sycophants and become cult leaders of some type or other. And it typically helps politically, sociopolitically, given the chimps that we're dealing with on Earth 2019, to employ a rhetoric of, I have discovered the truth about the world. Or, you know. But the thing, yeah, this sounds to me, and I've brought this guy up before. I don't know why I keep bringing him up. but And in this, in, in particular, this this thing and i don't know if this applies or not so you can comment on that after i'm i've completed it nasim nicholas taleb his latest thing is all about skin in the game and it's the idea that we need systems where individual agents or whatever in those systems you know will whatever it is that they do incur risk as well as whatever the rewards are but right now there's a lot of people, for instance, in in our financial systems, because that's his focus, where they don't incur any of the risk, but they get all the rewards. In science, the wolf pack, there's a lot of risk and reward, right? If you want to be the alpha, you're taking a risk, but you get the reward for that. But maybe the grizzly bear is running out there. What episode is this? 15? <laughs> it's the foggy one. That one, uh, or that the idea, you know, you got the grizzly bear philosopher running around. Maybe they can have not a lot of people, if they do call them out on their stuff, it's not the same. Maybe there isn't the same culture or something. But what I will say, though, is that once you're in the pack, you feel, oh, well, this alpha really knows, you know? And so, so long as you're kind of adhering to what the alpha says or whatever, then you're good, you know? And so then you, the alpha touches to truth. If I touch the alpha, then maybe vicariously I'm touching truth or whatever. So I think there can be a lot of ego in science as well. Maybe not as much in, as, as it is in philosophy, but then again, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but the scientists that I've known, not all of them, I guess, I don't know. We don't tend to talk about this stuff in depth, but Scientists tend to be like, well, that's just philosophy, you know, and it's like, so they clearly don't respect it. So even if somebody, a philosopher did have a big ego, it would just like, <laughs> boink, off the top of a, you know, just bounce off the forehead of a scientist. They'd be like, whatever. Especially like, because I'm reading a particular book about the foundations of physics. Some of those people, they've got some mm-hmm. serious fucking egos, man. Standard model, the supersymmetry and all, I mean, there's some big egos in physics. But then again, they're running like it's hard to, they kind of phase shift while you're standing in front of them, right? Between being philosophers and scientists. But so maybe that's why. I don't know. But 
I figure there's there's quite a bit of ego. Oh, dinosaur paleontologist? Holy shit, there's some huge egos there. I don't know. I'm not trying to make this into like a pissing contest. I just want to make sure to mention there's egos in science. Oh, yeah, that's sure. Yep. <laughs> it was worth it, that 15 minutes. I think the they're right, though. I'm... I'm with them. Most philosophy is crap. Mm. A greater percentage of it than science, probably. You could write a book called Ego Without Intuition. (laughs) (laughs) Next? Well, all right. I think that we've pretty much established the playing field, right? We've got Kaplan's point, the debate in metaphilosophy about the role of intuitions, And we've shown that some people argue that intuitions are not important, and others who argue that they are, and then whether or not that is okay. So, I guess... Get another beer open here before (laughs) I can open this book. I don't like... in. Okay. So, I do like arguments. I have... I'm kind of a... Leaning in the last few years... A lot of my emphasis has kind of been metaphilosophical discourse norms, normative semantics. How can we behave in such a way as to be more productive and progressive in philosophy? That's where science shines, perhaps, right? If anywhere. It facilitates the engineers to make a bunch of cool gadgets. It lets us explore new frontiers, and it seems more collaborative, progressive over time. More of it is accepted as canon and taken forward, right? Whereas philosophers, the cliches go, is all footnotes Plato, it's all they're still talking about the same debates that they've talked about for 3,000 years. That's no good. Who who likes that? I don't know. That that's to me, just shows that there's a flaw in what you fuckers are doing. And you need to change something so that you can actually get something done. Still talking about the Stoics, for crying out loud. Yeah. Oh, my God. And these things have (laughs) resurgences. And now everybody loves Stoics all of a sudden. But they're they're fads and whatever. We'll talk about that in aesthetics. There's a fad, yeah. I'm not saying there is. Anyway. I think the Dawdler's Philosophy Podcast so far has been altogether too positive. We've done all of these topics that I love and respect. We do Nietzsche and Wittgenstein and Daniel Dennett and Keith Frankish and general semantics and argument and everything, and I'm just this Pollyanna, rainbows and sunshine co-host that only talks about things that they want to defend. Well, not tonight. Tonight, uh, my example of philosophy that I think uses intuitions and uses intuitions in a negative way is most likely, as we engage in going through this, going to lead to me being super chimpy. So hang on to your hats and get ready for somebody to lose their shit. A lot of my books are dented because they've been thrown across the room, so to speak, many times. Nice. Because I like philosophy, and I oh, this is a book, and it's labeled philosophy, and oh, this person is an eminent philosopher, 
I should probably know what they have to say. And then I try to read it, and I immediately become infuriated and get very chimpy. (laughs) One of the philosophers who has the highest ratio of, as we say on Dollar's Philosophy, BFD-ness, the biggest fucking deal, who I can't handle, Mm. I can't get through a page of, because I so dislike them methodologically, because I find them so intuitionist, is the 20th century neo-pragmatist Hilary Putnam. Mm. And the book that I'm going to be drawing from today is just chapter one, you know, because that's all you need to find more than enough examples of intuition (laughs) of his book, Reason, Truth, and History. He was, you know, one of the bigger deals, uh, Harvard professor, worked with Quine and talked about Wittgenstein. Did well, you know? He's just one of the one of the bigger names of the second half. Big name of for the twenty sure. twentieth century. And I really don't get it. <laughs> okay. The reason he shows up at this meeting tonight is he's who I want to throw in Herman Kaplan's face and say. You're telling me that philosophy is not, that intuition doesn't play a central role in philosophy? Well, okay. Does Hilary Putnam, is he a central philosopher? Yes, okay, yes. All right. Well, let's start at page fucking number one and talk about all the intuitions in this. All right. Quote, An ant is crawling on a patch of sand. As it crawls, it traces a line in the sand. By pure chance... The line that it traces curves and recrosses itself in such a way that it ends up looking like a recognizable caricature of Winston Churchill. Has the ant traced a picture of Winston Churchill? A picture that depicts Churchill? Question mark, end of first quote. That makes sense? We've got our ant, we've got the beach, he's walking around uh, hauling food, following pheromone trails, doing whatever the ant is doing, accidentally, yep. its trail appears to you and I, were we to look from above at the right angle, uh-huh. we, might ju- we would be likely to judge the shape of this ant trail as resembling, to our perception, to a sig- sufficient extent that it is remarkable... Hey, that, that looks like fucking Winston Churchill. <laughs> and then he's like, did the ant do it on purpose? Well, no, I think I'm willing. You know, Let's put that in the agreement base between Putnam and us. Okay. We both agree the ant yeah. did not purposefully draw a picture uh-huh. of Winston Churchill. But so that he wants to ask the question, has the ant traced a picture that depicts Churchill. And my first problem is just with that question itself as saying, I don't know, that's how that's an unanswerable question. I don't... Like, what? May, it, there, is there even a fact of the matter about that? Is this thing a picture or not of Winston Churchill? Sounds to me like a very poorly phrased question. You, and it doesn't matter whether it's an ant to me. It could be anything. It could be... The erosion pattern of this creek, 
It could whatever. The Mary Virgin Mary on the grilled cheese. Name your fucking example. It doesn't matter. That face on Mars, that little rock that's got the face. Is this a face or not a face? Just to me, we're all we've already left the domain of questions that we ought to care about. And I presu- I'm hoping that my science stand-in here will say, yeah, I don't know, I don't care, that's not a question. Is, is that a picture that depicts Churchill? I what? <laughs> well, I will say this for myself. <laughs> what do you scientists out there think? That, you know, the question is a little more wordy than a simple, like, when you say it that way, like, is this burnt toast a depiction of the Virgin Mary or something like that? Um, well, I mean, I guess my first, I don't know if that's the question. Is that an equivalent question? Let me ask that first. I think so. The, I mean, he's using, he, and he even puts the word in italics, depicts. So that's what so he wants to emphasize. Burn pattern, a depiction of the Virgin Mary. I mean, obviously the to me anyway, the, the easier answer to that is to just be like, well, it's just happened to happen. And so uh, why are we asking if it is a depiction of it? Cause when you say depiction, I guess I don't, whatever the definition of depiction is, I don't have it in my head like a good one or whatever, but I think depiction, that's like someone's doing something to make it right. Like that's why I was, saying right away that it sounded to me like when he asked that about the ant and the lines in the sand or whatever and it being Churchill's face that it sounded like well the ant was doing something to depict something it saw I don't know maybe I don't have the good definition I, I it works for me I think and I guess you're agreeing with me without as much chimpiness <laughs> As I recall, and I could be wrong, I don't think that at least here, maybe it does somewhere else, he wrote a lot, I don't think Putnam gives an explicit definition of depict. The dictionary definition (laughs) of depict is show or represent by a drawing or art form. So it's about representation, so then he talks more about representation than depiction. But I want, I guess, I don't know, maybe I'm just too scientistic in the like scientismist sense or something because i'm so influenced by this tradition that wants to operationalize things and i don't think that anyone has an operational definition for depicts as i did when i was kind of rephrasing the question to you we can talk about which agents when viewing this pattern of shadows in sand would report or evaluates it to like how many people walk by and look and say oh fucking that's churchill or that look at how much that looks like churchill whatever we can talk about that Uh we can why do we need to go any further and ask this pseudo question this armchair question has the ant depicted churchill that's, and this is one of the reasons that I like Wittgenstein with the whole deflationary psychiatric 
attitude toward philosophers where what we need to do is dissolve these questions. We don't want to answer Putnam questions. We just want to show why that's a bad question. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, that's totally fine. I think the answer in general is no. And I, when I think about the word depict in whatever lexical definitions there are out there and other words that could stand in for depict or whatever, it seems like the answer is obviously no, and that he is asking whether or not the ant is trying to portray something. I don't, you know, like, so I, it all gets, it's kind of like what you're talking about. I totally get, but I also, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't, does he later go on to talk about something that might shed light on what he's saying there in that question to allow you to say, what the fuck? Or is it just straight up? Once you got to that point, you were like, what the fuck? Because if you were like, what the fuck right away, then to me, my initial response was, oh, he's trying to say something about the ant. He's asking a question about the ant, what the ant is doing. I don't think he's he cares about what the ant is doing. So why, why is it He depicting? cares about the nature of representation itself as an institution, as a okay, so- concept. What it... And we can say this looking back. When a person picks up a book and reads it, it's easy to just be sequential and just start here. But then if you take a minute to think about it and say, oh, this person has written multiple drafts. They've talked about things. They've argued uh-huh. about these things for years. There's a reason why they start there and why they use this example, etc. Uh-huh. It seems to me clear intuitive <laughs> it's, it's that the reason that he's doing this is ideologically based and he's already decided his position on something else and this is a sort of it's an intuition pump putnam is all about intuition pumps he uses them all the time he has a destination in mind and he's just thinking which rhetorical strategies will bring the greatest number of audience members to reach my destination he doesn't actually care about anything about the ant. It's just he's using this method of cases to try to cajole people into following him down the path. But anyway, no, he does say much more about it. So, next paragraph. <laughs> Quote, Most people would say on a little reflection that it has not depicted Churchill. The ant, after all, has never seen Churchill or even a picture of Churchill. It had no intention of depicting Churchill. It simply traced a line that we can see as a picture of Churchill. This is what I meant. What do you mean what you meant? What he's saying people would say is what I was thinking. So he is talking about the ant, though. Anyway keep going i mean he's talking about it but then obviously he's not but because i have no idea what you're going to say next he doesn't care about the ant well he cares about what people think and what people are thinking about is the ant and so somehow the ant is invoking something question is about the ant doing something and i know i'm just like driving you crazy right now but the ant the question is about the ant doing something and he's asking about whatever it's doing and so people are focusing i think naturally 
on the ant. It's the subject of the sentence. Right? I, I think it's just you and E.O. Wilson. Philosophers don't care about the ant either. They realize that you what just said is, that people would respond. That he said people would respond about the ants not doing that. Oh, for fuck's sakes! But us philosophers don't care that it's an ant. We're not. I know. Doing... I don't care. That's. I get it. I get that you don't care that it's an <laughs> ant. It could be a fucking toothpick. Somehow has agency. I don't. I get it. But that's not. What he's talking about, because he's saying what most people would say, so he's focusing on what most people would say. Then he's going to go on to do talk about something else, which will enlighten the rest of us, or not. So the next thing that he says is, the line is not in itself a representation of anything. Similarity to the features of Winston Churchill is not sufficient to make something represent or refer to Churchill. In a footnote, he tells us a little bit about what he means by representation and reference. In this book, the terms representation and reference always refer <laughs> to a relation between a word or other sign or symbol and something that actually exists. You can do that. That's fine. If a person wishes to, you can stipulate whatever definitions you want, and as long as you make them explicit, that's helpful. Okay. You have the large burden now to do a whole bunch of metaphysics because he's talking about actual existence all of a sudden. So now we've got a huge can of worms about realism and our access to that and how we establish ontologies. So, I mean, he loses me with that, of course, right away, talking about what actually exists. But we can forget about that for now. So representation is between a symbol and the world. And the line that the ant drew is not by itself a relationship between the symbol and the world because similarity is not sufficient to make something represent. Okay. I don't think that very many people will realize that all he did there as well was stipulate. That's going to sound to people like he made an argument and established something and just said something true. But he didn't. All he did was stipulate that for him it's a rule that similarity is insufficient for representation. But there's no argument for that. Oh. It's resting on what I'm calling, it could be called intuition, it could be called this bedrock stuff. It could be, he's, he just pulls sleight of hand everywhere. Interesting. The line is not in itself a representation of Churchill. Why not, Putnam? Because similarity is not sufficient to represent. Well, that's according to what? Like, he just... (laughs) (laughs) Similarity can't establish a relationship between a symbol and... And the world? Well, I think it probably can. That's the whole point of iconography and semiotics, right? An icon is a symbol that resembles, that is isomorphic to, the thing that it represents. Yeah. So he seems to just have dismissed all of that out of hand in this tricky way that sounds like an argument, but is a mere stipulation. (laughs) Well... Okay, is there anything to do with the accident of creating the thing? 
you know, for instance, was Purse, who we were talking, maybe connecting to with the iconography definition, was Purse, say, you know, in the realm of, well, there's an agent creating it for some purpose or whatever, the pattern, and that is supposed to be, you know, represent in a similarity way uh, whatever it is connecting up to in the world and that that's the icon and is Putnam possibly saying if you're not attempting to make it then somehow that negates it from being an icon or whatever a representation as he was saying if so I think he owes us an argument about that and to make it explicit and to address all of this rather than just papering over it because the point is that he's not doing that he's not giving us anything more than just that yeah, he's not giving us anything more than the declarative sentence, similarity is insufficient for reference. Right, okay, yeah, sure. If you don't bring anything to the table, like you didn't read Purse or whatever, you know, you might not have a way to engage with that. And well, so he's Or not if you just had the either. general methodological practice of being skeptical about everything and disputing as many things as seem need sure, dispute, sure. And then you would just say, wait a minute, what did you just say? Why? Okay, why? What? What do you mean? And that you just need to press on these people and there's nothing there, there's nothing beneath it, in my opinion, from my reading, from what I can, the best I can do, than something like intuition, something like the, what was the definition we were going to use from the beginning? This... Something about psychological salience. Intellectual happenings that seem to us to be the case that stand out with great psychological salience. Isn't that it? almost literally what he's doing when he says things like, well, most people would say that it has not because, well, the ant didn't do it on purpose, did it? And then everybody says, no, it didn't do it on purpose. Well, then that... Sure, yeah, I, I, I buy that. There's no, he didn't do a survey as far as I can tell. He's just pumping intuitions. Yeah, sure. I, I, I can appreciate that. But, you know, the way this stuff gets handed down, at least for me, I, I'm kind of just sort of like gathering it all up. You know, I'm just, I haven't done any analysis yet. I feel like sometimes with the idea of the skeptic that you are, you're maybe doing an analysis almost instantaneously. Like as each sentence is getting, you know, in is in the readout, you're just like analyzing it as well, you know? Oh, yeah. And I, I don't do that necessarily, but that might be laziness on my part or something. I don't know. But uh, that's pretty cool. That's not something, that's not something I do. I'm guessing if other people are like you or me or somewhere in between, I don't know, but. I mean, it depends also on how much you care. Like, if it was something that I cared about, I'd be like, God damn it, everything you've said is wrong, you know, right? But if I, if it's just me being like, oh, oh, good, I'm reading his first chapter, I might, I might uh, just take it for what it is at the beginning. Anyway, obviously, I've, <laughs> my job today is to salami slice. Continue. The things that I do also can be done from the armchair. Ah. So I'm with the philosophers there. I also sit around 
preferably with a bourbon in hand. Mm. And, you know, whatever, sliced salami. But <laughs> I don't think that the only thing you... Christ, you federalist. <sighs> you don't think what? The, it's not like the only thing you can do from an armchair is close your eyes and analyze intuitions or listen to each other describe some random narrative then close your eyes run it through your little oh how does that seem to me well he said it seems like the ant didn't make a picture of churchill how does that seem to me oh yes it also seems to me that i i wouldn't call that a picture of churchill ah what a wise philosopher you have <laughs> discovered the truth <laughs> all these people are doing is they're just looking for the report of their chimp it's so pointless it's auto anthropology it, it, it like what <laughs> do i feel like saying now and then taking that for an established premise yeah i'm so offended oh my god <laughs> <laughs> no yeah i i can i can in that view as i said before i can appreciate it I can appreciate it. So he talks about Churchill. He talks about representations. He keeps saying things like, so it may seem that what is necessary for representation is intention. But does it? And then he goes on. It's all just about, I'm going to throw words and scenarios at you and ask how they seem to you. And then justify my premises by saying, well, it seems to me and my friends that X, therefore X. And hello, mm. Kaplan, that is the method of centrality. If that's how you proceed and how you justify your premises, by leaning back in your armchair and comparing seemings, you aren't doing any interesting intellectual work. You are a circle jerk. Like, I don't care. <laughs> so he goes on and on about the ant and the thing and the whatever. And then, with nothing else added, he writes, What is important to realize... Factive terminology, like, look, I've already established, now it's time for you to get there with me. Can you realize this too, <laughs> fucking stupid student? <laughs> What's important to realize is that what goes for physical pictures also goes for mental representations in general. Where the fuck did that come from? I don't need to justify that premise, because it's already true, you just need to realize, you haven't realized that it's true yet. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so okay then i want to establish that what does he follow that up with why is what goes for physical pictures also true for mental representations and he dives directly in to another intuition pump another case <laughs> perhaps the point is easiest to grasp in the case of mental images suppose there is a planet somewhere on which human beings have been evolved, suppose that these humans, otherwise like us, have never seen trees. 
Suppose one day a picture of a tree is accidentally dropped on their planet by a spaceship. <laughs> Imagine them puzzling over the, the picture. What in the world is this? For us, the picture is a representation of a tree. But for these humans, the picture only represents a strange object, nature and function unknown. The mental image of the person on this planet is not a representation of a tree... It is only a representation of the strange object, whatever it is, that the mysterious picture represents. That, again, this last sentence, declarative, factive, claim. His mental image is, in italics, not a representation of a tree. It is only a representation of some strange X. <sighs> Do you see what I... You know, and at this point, the book goes across the room, and then I have to wait a while and meditate before I can handle picking it up again. He just tells a story, what my co-host likes to call an argument from absurdity. Uh, now we've got yeah. a second planet where other beings have evolved, but they're just like humans except just no trees. <laughs> and now a UFO drives by and drops a picture from Earth. <laughs> yes. of, it's a pretty of a tree. So, but yeah, so we forget all of the absurdity and just accept that all of that happens. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Putnam drops this claim onto my planet. <laughs> the mental image of this person on the other planet is not a representation of a tree. Why not? <laughs> he just takes it for granted. He, this time he doesn't even say, most people would say. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Pause for comment. You're just like, I'm just laughing at this too. I don't know what to do. Well, I'm also just laughing at your, uh, your, your uh, mad as hell and you're not going to take it anymore. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm going to get on my microphone and I'm going to podcast about this. Yeah, and he's going to hear like, me from hell. Yeah, like it, it just, it. yeah, we could just let you just go. Like... <laughs> Marlon's just going to rail on Putnam and then every once in a while yell at Kaplan for not noticing. <laughs> the same thing is true of words. Monkeys uh -huh. randomly hitting keys do not refer to anything. So he just piles on top. Wouldn't you agree that the monkeys on the million typewriters oh, yeah. don't refer to anything? N I don't know, Putnam. No, I wouldn't necessarily agree to that. Slow the fuck down. Let's. We can maybe think about that. But like, he just says that. He's like, well, let me pile another absurd analogy on top. Wouldn't you say that? <laughs> I'm sorry. At this point, it has totally moved into you just being hilarious about your frustrations. <laughs> you slow the fuck down. I tried to warn you this was coming. Oh, God. Slow the fuck down. <laughs> oh, I have not laughed like this in a while. This is very nice. So all of that was leading up the monkeys and the trees and the ant. We're leading up to the premise, the claim. Words and mental pictures do not intrinsically represent what they are about. What is intrinsicality? What, how could anything be? Uh -huh. Is anything... Whatever. So he wants that premise, but then the next one is a famous one that he's not initiating here, but just referencing. The science fiction possibility 
that a human being has been subjected to an operation by an evil scientist such that their brain has been extracted and placed in a vat of nutrients which keeps the brain alive. The nerve endings have been connected to a super scientific computer which causes the person whose brain it is to have the illusion that everything is perfectly normal, blah, blah, blah. So we got the brain oh, in yeah. the vat. This is... And the matrix and the whatever. But it's his major... This is his major mimetic contribution. Brain in the vat. We know the brain in the vat thing... Did I do it good enough yet? Some listeners might not. The Matrix movies you've seen. The concept of, to the extent that everything a human being, quote-unquote, experiences, is a result of the activities of their nervous system and not their entire body interacting with an environment, but maybe if you just took the brain and shocked it in a very sophisticated manner, it might give rise to the same, quote-unquote, experiences as the full-on body interacting in an environment, it might seem to that brain as though it was lifting its arm and tasting ice cream when what's really going on is an evil scientist jolting a brain in a jar with electrodes. Suppose, Putnam writes, this whole story were actually true. Could we, if we were brains in a vat, say or think that we were? I'm going to argue that the answer is no, we could not. And I'm going to argue that the supposition that we are actually brains in a vat, although it violates no physical law, cannot possibly be true. Because it is self-refuting. The argument I'm going to present is unusual, and it took me several years to convince myself that it is Ah! really right. But it is a correct (laughs) argument. That was good. Nice. Like, you're fired, man. You can't work here anymore. You are out of my community. If you write these words, but no, he's a big, he's a BFD, and he's famous, and he's at Harvard, and he's a big deal. This stuff is obviously not okay, methodologically, and anyone who would write that... All right, You need I'm, to go. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm leaving. I get so chimpy about this stuff. That's great. Keep getting chimpy, man. He justifies his own idiosyncratic, intuition-grounded argument about reference, and somehow through that claims that he can prove certainly, you know, he says it cannot possibly be true that we are brains and vats. Because if we were, we couldn't say that we were, and apparently he knows that we can say that. We- <laughs> uh, this is, uh, I'm trying to think of the cover for this one. <laughs> well, you're getting all angry at Hillary Putnam. And uh, I don't think it's like, I think it's taboo right now, probably, to, you know, have like the crosshairs of a scope, you know? <laughs> Sorry. Can the scope just be on a brain in a vat? Is that maybe. a safe you thing to say? You could snipe that, maybe. But I really want it to just be Hillary Putnam in an armchair. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, uh, I, I will... Uh, You're so violent. Out. Don't you understand? I mean, I don't want to hurt the guy. Well, no, but you know, it's it's not him. It's You want to hurt his ideas. You want to hurt them real bad. <laughs> yeah, I want everyone to always stop doing this kind of thing and not think it's okay 
and the only way this book should ever be referenced is at a as a catalog of errors at look what these 20th century morons thought no, was philosophy. We, we did a whole damn episode on Dennett's intuition pumps book. Like what, what's, what's he mean by then? Because I, I am so like turned around about intuition now at this point, Putnam does intuition pumps, but Dennett's talking about them as a way to get things going started. Are you, would you say that Putnam only uses them and then that's it? He just throws the pump on the ground when he's done and he doesn't do anything more? Like, what is the, like, because we, you know what I mean? Like the... Yeah. I think it's all about what you're using them for and what you think they accomplish. If you, and that's part of why I think the term intuition pumps is tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. and almost, you know, kind of comedic in a sense it's like yeah we we're they can be used for good or ill but whatever they are they're just kind of funny they're just curiosities they're well let's see what happens when as Hofstadter says we turn the knobs Mm -hmm. on the pump you know it's if that's what you're using them for I don't have a problem with that if it's well let's see what our intuitions are about this but many other philosophers don't appear to use them as self-examination mechanisms or social examination mechanisms. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, this whole thing has like fried your brain. You're having a little episode here. Oh my god. That <sighs> <sighs> We you know folks, we are But instead uh, we're trying. <laughs> We're trying tonight, folks. We're trying real hard. It's not nothing. It's not nothing. We're, but you know, it's almost. Oh! <laughs> now I'm going to be insulted at the same time. Well, that's okay. You're already insulted by Putnam, so I'm. Uh, I'm kind of in the clear. I feel like he's a bigger target. <laughs> I can kind of, I can. <laughs> I envision you kind of hiding behind him and poking your head out, shooting a Nerf gun at me and being like, ha! <laughs> yeah, basically. As if Putnam and I were on the same side. Some people don't seem to use intuition pumps as examination mechanisms, but rather as routes to discovery. And I feel as though Putnam is doing that. He's like, he literally says he makes impossibility claims based upon thought experiments that pump intuitions. Right. And as soon as you start doing that, you run afoul of myself. You can't justify a premise in an argument that's going to support a claim by using intuitions. You can use them as a sort of expositional assist or crutch. Like, all right, let me. here's my argument. Now, let me tell you what I mean. Let's imagine there's an ant. Like, that's how I think they should be used. You don't justify your premise based on the ant story. You just kind of use it to try to show people what you're saying. And they're like, oh, I think I get it. But that comes after you've already established premises and, you know, a conditional conclusion and all that. It, often. It doesn't have to be that way in order of exposition but you can't i don't want people to have the only support the only sub argumentation the only 
dispute resolution mechanism to be an intuition appeal. So my premise is... Premise one. <laughs> Similarity is insufficient for representation. Premise two, blah, blah, and that's part of your argument. If someone wants to dispute premise one and say, I think similarity is sufficient. Look at iconography. If your response to that dispute is only an intuition appeal, I think you have not resolved the dispute. Then I say, well, my dispute remains. All you just did was throw an intuition appeal. And and here, philosophy becomes tractable. Like You can start to work on it and move along. Yeah, that's why I want more philosophers more of the time to emphasize this methodology that consists of the making of claims supported by arguments subject to disputes. So you say what you want to say, you make your claim, then you provide your argument in favor of that claim, and you allow your audience to dispute any aspect of your argument. Then you make another argument to support the, you know, we call sub-arguments, you say, all right, well, I can, you don't buy premise one yet, here's why you should. And then you make another argument Mm -hmm. on demand. You have the burden to do that because the burden is always on the person who makes a positive claim. And then, to me, that methodology allows progress. If your response to a disputant is an appeal to intuitions, I think you should fail just kind of by rule right away. That's all you've got? We've already agreed in our methodology that intuitions are reports from the chimp. The chimp is obviously biased by its evolutionary history, its individualistic development, its language, its etc., etc. There's all kinds of biases and setups. Mm -hmm. We don't trust intuitions as sufficient epistemic justifications for arguments. And a lot of people, including Putnam in this book, I argue, do that. And that's not okay. Yeah, and I I like what you're saying as a way to sort of shed light on it or detect it or or put it out there is that, you know, if if there were some kind of premise-based argument structure that you had a dialectic in or whatever that his appeals to intuition or whatever would be insufficient and i think that's kind of interesting i mean that's sort of a more constructive way of dissolving his intuitions if you will the way wittgensteinian discussion part in our episode here was laid out if i'm saying it correctly whatever i like it so then he moves from there to the Turing test all oh, of a Jesus. sudden. Fucking God damn And he it. says something about the Turing test. So I'm sitting here in my armchair on a podcast listened to by 13.7 people. I'm reading a book by a Harvard professor published by Cambridge University Press that has become canon. In it is the sentence, quote, In short... A computing machine is conscious if it can pass the Turing test, unquote. As Putnam's, in short, rephrase of Alan Turing's point. And no, it fucking isn't. <laughs> he specifically writes in, Tur- in Turing's paper, 
computing machinery and intelligence, 1948 or 1950, whichever it is, the entire point of that paper, the point of the Turing test, is to replace the... It, consciousness doesn't even hardly occur in there. It's not about consciousness. That's anachronistic. And the question that Turing was considering is the question, quote-unquote, can machines think? He, he thought the question, can machines think, was a meaningless question, and he wanted to operationalize it with the scientific question, can a machine pass the Turing test? Mm -hmm. He was not saying, if a machine passes the Turing test, then it can think. He was replacing can think with pass the Turing test. And he definitely wasn't saying a machine is conscious if it can pass the Turing test. Right. Oh, boy. As just a general frustration with the way my world works, why am I a podcaster that, has no, that can't get no respect? <laughs> and these people are as respectable as they get, and they misrepresent important ideas that badly. A computing machine is conscious if it can pass the Turing test, Putnam? No. Well, this comes back to my referring to Taleb's skin in the game thing. I don't know about philosophy and the dynamics of philosophers and how they get along in academia. I don't know, for instance, what the requirements are or were for someone like Hillary Putnam to get the job at Harvard or whatever it is and to write his books and to make friends with Quine or whatever. Um, but if he's misrepresenting things and no one's really calling him out on it, I don't know if they are or if they did or didn't or if they cared, then he's incurring no risk, you know, by making those kinds of statements. But he gets, I guess, as history has, as you said, it's, his book is canon and his work, uh, but he, he gets to reap all the rewards. And so that's what that just sounds like to me. So why is that any different than the people at Merrill Lynch or wherever when the economy tanked in 2007, 2008, and they got bailed out and they get to just, as Taleb is talking about in the financial systems he's focused on, you know, they get to incur no risk and they get to get all the rewards. They get to get bailed out. They, you know, the car companies get to get bailed out. Everybody who's part of the fuck up doesn't actually then lose. So it's someone like Putnam, whatever the system is for philosophers, at least in the 20th century, you know, you can royally fuck up Turing yeah. and still... And still write a book that becomes canon. Too big to fail. You're yeah, too big to fail. Whatever it is, but it's you know, it's is it too big to fail or just no size is big or small enough to be called into question. There's no responsibility there, no accountability, etc. And so I don't know if that's just philosophy and the humanities of academia institutions, 20th century uh, Western civilization. I don't know. But that seems to me like kind of a parallel. There's just no skin in the game. No, In science, it's the opposite. It's like if you fuck up royally and you are smug about it and everybody's like, you're wrong, then you know everyone's going to be like, this fucking loser, you know? And it's over. So they really worry about their reputations, about getting everything right. 
because I guess in that system, there's skin in the game. And I keep saying that phrase, but that's the phrase that Taleb is trying to say. You can lose something, you know, and that's important uh, to, to gain rather than lose, at least within that accountability system or whatever. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but if that does, then I'd say that's my submission for an answer. Well, I don't know. I've got all the skin in there, but I'm not playing an important game, so I guess it doesn't matter what I say, right? Well, it, I guess in philosophy it just doesn't. You can say whatever you want, and everyone's like shrugs it off or something. I, I guess. Oh, I mean, I'm not in philosophy. Well, I'm just no. some fucking random drunk in the middle of nowhere yelling at a microphone. <laughs> you might as well be then, right? Sorry. <laughs> But I'm telling you, fucking go read the Turing paper and tell me that he ever said <laughs> your computing machine is conscious if it can pass the Turing test. And if he didn't, why does this book exist? Why did Cambridge publish it with that sentence in it? I, you know, I'm a chimp. Well, they probably but, didn't you know. read it either or whatever. I don't know. Or they didn't focus closely enough. Or... And, you know, I, sometimes it's like, you know, the uniform does the talking, right? Like the cops show up and you're like, holy crap, you know, it's officials. You know, you don't see the human being, you just see the uniform or whatever. So, uh, I wonder about that. He brings up Turing Machine <laughs> <laughs> to run through. So he goes through all that and then he's like, all right. There's no more reason to regard a machine's talk of apples as referring to real world apples than there is to regard the ant's drawing of Winston Churchill. So, you know, he started with the ant because everybody's supposed to agree to that. Now we've got a computer that can pass a Turing test. And he says, that also, nothing that it says refers because it's the same as the ant. Can we ask him to slow down and justify that? No. <laughs> it's intuitively correct that the computer and the ant are equivalent as far as the ability to refer why is that? Because he's already, like, it's all, not enough people concentrate on begging the question. I talk about begging the question almost every week because that's what everyone does and that's what Putnam is doing here. He assumes in the first place his own theory of reference that he's attempting to justify, that, it's, that there's a causal component. And then he backs up and uses a bunch of intuition pumps that make it sound like you would agree. Although the machine does not perceive apples, its creators did. So there is some, in italics, causal connection between the machine and the real-world apples. So now he's like, oh, yeah, well, what about you skeptics who are going to say the computer is not quite as bad as the ant, because though the ant has zero causal connection to Churchill, the computer has a mediated causal connection through its creators to apples. <laughs> Quote, But such a weak connection can hardly suffice for reference. <laughs> and then he runs forward. Um, wait. Uh, excuse me, Professor. Can you slow down here, too? Uh. What do you mean... Can it's so weak that it can hardly suffice. <laughs> I don't like philosophers either. I'm with the scientists. I think this 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 should just fade out with you to be like and another thing, you know, just keep going. 
And another thing. So then he in the same oh paragraph, God. it ends by saying, that is why the machine cannot be regarded as referring at all. <laughs> so that's his argument. He's like, first we start with the ant, then we go to the Turing test. Then we just stipulate that even though there's a little tiny causal connection, it's insufficient. And because of the ants, and because you all agreed with me about that, remember? Remember when everybody said that the ant doesn't count? Well, that's why a machine can't be... So, Kaplan, remember, we're still talking to Kaplan. Yeah, We have a prominent philosopher. He's making an argument. His argument is Turing machine artificial intelligences can never refer to actual objects. Why can they not? Because ant trails don't represent Churchill. Why do they not? Well, because everyone agrees that it intuitively seems that they don't. So that's why, you know, this is my argument for centrality to Kaplan. Here's a person, they count, they're, they're important, they, you know, it's not a homeless guy on the street it's not <laughs> me saying this he's constructing what he considers an argument he's making what he considers claims and if you trace it back it is 100 percent based on intuitions listen up Kaplan. is Kaplan still alive Putnam's, yeah. Putnam's dead <laughs> or he i mean i haven't <laughs> talked to him since we started <laughs> God. Well, it, you, you might want to at him in Twitter, okay? Does he have a handle? I don't know. At There's no intuition. <laughs> oh my god. This was a beautiful thing. It had lots of uh The brains in a vat oh are brains. Moreover, they are functioning brains, and they function by the same rules as brains do in the actual world. For these reasons, it would seem <laughs> absurd to deny consciousness to them. But the fact that they are conscious does not mean that their words refer. He does it in chapter-long argument form, relies on seemings, and he does it in single paragraph, one sentence to another seemings. He stipulates that the brains in a vat function as the same rules as brains in the actual world, which they obviously do not, because the rules they function by are whatever rules the scientist programmed into them, rather than the robust, full-fledged causal connections of brains in the world. So I don't even know what he means, why they function by the same rules. No, they don't. But even if they did, then he says, it would seem absurd to deny consciousness to them. Well... I would. Apparently Keith Frankish would. So apparently we're just all absurd and don't count. And then in the very next sentence he says, but the fact that they are conscious, dot, dot, dot. In the space of 20 words or whatever, he goes from, it would seem absurd to deny consciousness to, it is a fact that they are not conscious. Is the whole world gone crazy? Am I the only one around here who gives a shit about the rules? <laughs> Excuse me, Professor. You can't reason from it would seem to it is a fact. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go get something to eat. Can you? <laughs> All right, I'm done. I mean, I had more. 
I, I there's it gets there's more, but I'm I'll stop. Do you want to talk about any of this, or do you just want to leave it as a rant? I want to leave it as a rant. It should have been fading out this whole time. God damn it! <laughs> it was classic, classic. It was great. No, it's... are you here? Are you still here? <laughs> yeah. I thought you left half an hour ago. <sighs> so good. So good. I love it. <laughs> it was it was very good. I uh I I was not expecting this, <laughs> but this is what it became, and I am all for it. I'm all in. Chips all in the middle. Intuitions play a larger role in philosophy than arguments do, and that is a bad thing. Well, yeah, well, Jesus. Yeah. I mean, because it's intuitions also play a large role in like political discussions on Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> between relatives. You know, it's uh, oh. yeah, but that's more forgivable. <clears throat> and I, you know, we expect more of our philosophers, and we pay them the big bucks so they can afford puffy armchairs. <laughs> Yes, yes we do. Yes we and do. And then they misuse those armchairs to sit in and write books like Reason, Truth, and History. I that's, you know, that's not a great title. That's just my opinion. What I loved was... Philosophers love to do either two or three word titles with just... Con- and that's all they do, because that it kind of just tells us which major concepts will be addressed in this book well i who was the guy who wrote fact fiction and forecast or whatever i like that nelson goodman that's a good one that's a good three-word title he's a little more clever though than putnam yeah i liked it it was it had alliteration and all that kind of stuff yeah it's good Uh, that that one works it's better than uh, we'll talk about that one later i like goodman a little better yeah for sure but it's better than like Bacteria to Bachman and Back or whatever the fuck that was. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Who came up with that idea? Yeah. That's not a great one. Doesn't work for me either. I Elbow Room is a great one. That's a good title. And then um Darwin's dangerous idea. I do not like that one at all. <laughs> I liked uh Freedom Evolves. Here we are, like critiquing. What do you have to say about intuitions? Do you have any any? What's your stance? I, intuitions are, speaking of Dennett, they're kind of like skyhooks or whatever. They just kind of float out there, you know. They don't like as the definition in the beginning that you put out there seems to suggest. Seems to suggest, um, if I am interpreting it correctly, it's just a. <clears throat> a thing without any real connections, no grounding or whatever, to lay your the 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 main thrust of whatever it is you're trying to to say if you're a philosopher on something like that, on a poof of cloud or whatever. It's it seems seems. I'm looking for the word. It just I guess not irresponsible because it's your own risk. Which apparently. I like irresponsible. Well, apparently, irresponsible, the only risk is that he's going to make you mad and he's already dead. But, uh, 
you know, it just seems instate. Uh, like there's not a lot of stability there. Like you're you're the wish and a prayer. It's it, it's never gonna last. It's not gonna be anything. I I you know that anyone really values that takes itself into the next generations and is productive and you know like we were we we talked recently about that guy that italian guy cavioli or whatever the fuck and he had his theory of stupid people or whatever the guy with the theory of stupid people i don't remember his last name i oh i don't know his name either but that's making the rounds online right now it is it's making the rounds online it's good um so good so good but you know he talks about intelligent people improve things for themselves and for others and i don't know if putnam is doing that he's improving something for himself and it looks like you're the helpless he's bandit and you're helpless he's taking something away from you you're losing and he's gaining (laughs) so i just think that you know it just if you were to rest such an important thing such as your uh you know prestigious thoughts upon a cloud such as an intuition or whatever a thought cloud uh <laughs> it seems kind of silly like i would never do something like that just because it seems like i i don't know seems I keep saying that i would want my stuff to hold on strong and to to be as beneficial to whoever encounters it as as much as possible and to just you know chit chat away and just say well you know and everybody knows and all that kind of stuff and let that be the way you you know elaborate your ideas i don't know it just seems i i wouldn't recommend it but apparently that doesn't matter philosophy you can do that and it's okay it's canon over time so long as you've got yeah, it's tradition so long as you've it's, got that harvard that's how we do as long things as you got that harvard shield in your um letterhead or whatever but i'm am i wrong am i wrong that all intuition reports indicate might be better classed under something like psychology ethology anthropology whatever it doesn't it's not philosophy some disciplines that want to learn about the human animal might be curious what their automatic responses are but to attempt to base some sort of conceptual model of reality or to base an argument or something on an intuition it just seems misplaced Am I wrong? Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. Am I wrong? You're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. Okay, then. No. I don't think you're wrong at all. I think... And I think that anyone listening to this episode would would agree, although I think, unfortunately, also that, you know, Hillary Putnam's a big name, so for those who understand the gravitas and the weight that comes with something like Harvard... Uh, maybe maybe they would uh, think otherwise, but... Oh, and uh, I, th- he is not far from the only one. That's just an example that was fresh on my mind because sure. no. the book is on my shelf and I, m- he makes me mad. But I think 
as a pessimistic centrality agent in Herman Kaplan terms, I think that most philosophers make similar moves and are content to rest their arguments upon a base of intuitions. But that any time that one does so, they ought to be called out. Okay, here's my question to you. For those in the past, because it's all footnotes to fucking Plato, is there a lot of resting his uh, idea laurels on intuitions? Yeah. Like Plato and... Is that what these people are doing as well? Or are they a little bit more like what does it do? Do intuitions last in philosophy? Well, Plato's version of Socrates, I think, was an example of someone who didn't want to let his contemporaries rest there. The Platonic dialogues often are, all right, well, what do you what do you feel like saying? How does it seem to you? And then problematizing it. And trying to show them how, well, that doesn't really work. But doesn't that conflict with this other seeming that you have? What are you going to do now? Uh-huh. To some extent, Plato himself, I think, was doing something laudable and in that I would be okay with. I think that it was questioning a lot of intuitions. But most of the footnotes, in my opinion, many, if not most, are heavily intuitional all right, but, you know, let me throw out the names of some philosophers that I hear an awful lot about. And you tell me if you think they're intuition guys. Oh, this sounds edit outable. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, here we go. Uh, Bacon? Oh, that's a hard one. I don't know too much about Bacon, and I think that so much of him was tongue-in-cheek. But I guess I kind of lean towards saying, yeah... Descartes. Big time. Hume. I think not so much. Whitehead. If so, his intuitions were unusual. Like, I think with him, maybe, but his would drastically differ from everybody else. I don't know if he was just crazy or what. Anyway, that's what I felt like saying. Spinoza. I don't know Spinoza very much. No comment. Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein was, to my perception, very interested in intuitions and very in touch with his intuitions, but did not typically reason from them. As we recently did in episode 18 or whatever, one of his refrains is even to start a passage by saying, I feel like saying and saying it, Mm -hmm. but then in the very next passage pointing out why, like, yeah, I felt like saying that, but I don't, like, if I think about it twice, maybe not. So I don't think, I mean, he was intuitionist in the sense of he cared about intuitions, he knew what his were, was sensitive to them, but didn't reason from them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Aristotle? As the empiricist, he thought he wasn't, and I don't know if he's right or not, right? Wasn't he, you know, they, people were referred to him almost as the first proto-scientist in various ways. Yep. But his deep essentialism strikes me as kind of 
intuitive and that he would have a tendency to interpret his results through a pretty thick lens. And when you're doing that, that's kind of intuitive. Vera? I don't know. I guess probably not, because he just was striving not to have much for his stances in the first place. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say that a default animalistic human nature chimp opinion would be to value your intuitions. So anyone who emphasized skepticism and epistemic responsibility would probably kind of tend toward being counterintuitive. Right. Rorty? I would say very low. And anyone who's in that sort of historicist camp with him would be low on intuitiveness, like Foucault and Kuhn and the historicists, I think, are low intuitionists. Dennett? Yeah, also low. Again, like Wittgenstein, and he was heavily influenced by Wittgenstein. Obviously, Dennett cares about intuitions, but I don't think he reasons from them very much, and his emphasis on them allows him to be less obviously influenced by them. You know, he's willing to just say, all right, well, what is the intuition here? And how can we alter what the intuition sounds like? I think that's a good game to play in a sort of Robert Anton Wilsonian sense of, yeah, whatever, intuition, that's a, yeah, let's check that out. Like, he's like, oh, you got a new drug? I'll take that. Got a new intuition pump? Put that in there. I'll check it out and see what my intuition says, but then when I find out, I'll just laugh at it and move on. Nietzsche? I want to answer like I did for Whitehead. I don't know if he was intuitionist but had strange intuitions, (laughs) or if he wasn't an intuitional thinker. Because he seemed so emotional, emphatic, artistic. Mm-hmm. In the, those kind of traits seem to correlate, maybe at least in my mind, with a willingness to buy into and abide by one's intuitions. But if he had some, they were unusual, because most of the things he said don't accord with most other people's intuitions. I guess I'll end there. Now I have to decide if I'm going to include that or not. All right. On the spot! We're on the spot. They were on the spot, and I thought maybe at the end you could kind of get a sense. And I mean, it's always a biased sample, but I was thinking, like, what do you think then now of philosophy when I list off big names or something? I I didn't mention Hegel or anyone else. I probably should have. Locke and Kant and all those guys. All right, well, I think this is that time. If not beyond... In our dreary winter slumber. Play something sad for Wee Jock. What is Wee Jock? What? (laughs) What's happening? (laughs) In the editing, you'll just start playing something sad for Wee Jock, but probably bagpipes, something, some sad bagpipes. It was a, there was a show called. Hamish Macbeth. I'm like, hold on.